I want to start by just reading you a poem from Gerhard Terstegen that I read last night. And maybe I'll read it again at the end of our message. We'll see if I remember to. And it will even make more sense. We follow in his footsteps. What if our feet be torn? Where he has marked the pathway, all hail the briar and thorn. Scarce seen, scarce heard, unreckoned, despised, defamed, unknown, or heard but by your singing, O children, ever on. Take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 5. Let me read to you the first five verses. We're going to be looking at verses 3, 4, and 5 this morning in our message. I've written a number of different titles in my head. I think my notes say the proof of transforming faith. We'll see what we should title it after we're done with the message. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. Well, you'll often hear individuals talk about the transformative nature of the Christian faith, the fact that what God does and what brings to the believer in faith in Jesus Christ is a transformation of the very being. And This is a declaration that the Lord Jesus gives to us through belief in his saving life and his saving worth. He gives to us or brings to us a change. He changes us. He doesn't merely change the direction that we're going in. It's not merely a conversion or a turning of our direction. We were heading in the ways of the world and now we're heading towards Christ and we're heading towards the things of Christ. And we were on the broad way that led to destruction and now we're on that narrow way that leads to life, eternal life. He does change the direction we're going to, but it's more than that. He changes the person who's heading in that direction. It's a whole new individual, a whole new person that's going that direction. And so what we have is we have whole new people going in a whole new direction. And as a result, we encounter whole new experiences. And that's the transformative nature of the faith that we put in Jesus Christ that saves us and delivers us. Paul has no use for a Christianity that doesn't prove itself out in some experience in life, doesn't produce some experiential reorientation of the life of the individual. He has no room for a Christianity that merely brings a change to our intellectual way of thinking or merely changes some sentiment in our minds. He preaches a Christianity that comes to the individual and brings about a radical transformation of their life. We are not just sitting alongside the river of some body of truth that's passing by and admiring it. Faith is getting into that river. It's plunging into that river. It's getting into the great river of salvation that has run throughout all of history. And it's launching ourselves by faith into Christ. It's launching ourselves into the work that He's accomplished for us and is dying for our sins and is rising for our sanctification and is commanding us and coming to us again and again to bring us His life and His power. And when you launch into that great river by faith, it takes you somewhere. It takes you off on a whole new adventure that you'd never known. It's like Huck Finn getting in his raft and pushing off into the great Mississippi and so begins a great novel and yet instead it's launching into the great river of God's saving work. It's an adventure that will take you to great places. It changes your life. It's transforming. That's what Paul's talking about. 
In Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul identifies three experiential changes brought to the one who steps into this river of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. First, they're struck with the sudden realization that they have peace with God. They had been enemies with God. They had been rebels against God. God's wrath and God's judgment had been directed towards them, but now they have peace with God. They're no longer foes with God. They're his friends. In fact, they're his loved children. And that's the first great dawning experience that comes upon the one who jumps into by faith that river of salvation. The second thing is they become aware that a whole new world is opening up to them. They're being led into a whole new world in which now they have access into the countless benefits of God's gracious salvation. They have access into grace, that is, all the common graces they experienced in life prior to that, now they receive those graces not as things unnumbered or unconsidered, but as poured out from their own home, from their own house, from heaven itself, which is their home, and from the throne of their very Father. And that's a wonder, and that's a glorious thing. And then God graciously begins to work upon them to bring to them the enjoyment of His fellowship. The Lord Jesus said to His disciples, it was better that He go away and send to them the Holy Spirit, because He was going to bring them a gracious experience of Himself they had not realized up to that point in time. Prior to that time, they'd walked alongside Him and talked with Him, and Jesus had been with them along the way, but... When the Spirit would come, a new level of intimacy would be realized in their life. The Spirit would be in them, abiding in them. And Jesus would be communicating His life to them from within their very being. And that's a gracious experience that becomes ours. We have the life of God in the soul of man. God, the infinite, eternal God, lives and abides within us by His grace. And then in that influence of His presence... He begins to press out from us and even press in upon us ways in which He shapes us and molds us into His presence and to His image. And He transforms all the experiences of our life into gracious invitations further and further into the outpouring of His life. But that's access into His grace. Our whole life becomes interpreted in a different way. It's grace. Paul says grace upon grace. It becomes our life. And then another thing that takes place that Paul tells us is We have a new trajectory in our life. We are now moving towards and flowing out towards the eternal life that God has called us into. We're moving towards the glory that is yet to be revealed when we shall enter the presence of God. And so we are caused to boast or exult in the hope of the glory of God. The Christian life is a life that is lived with an eschatological perspective. Everyone else in the world today is trying to stave off the end of their life. When you're transformed by Jesus Christ, what happens for the believer is we're actually rushing to it. We're running to the end because it climaxes in the glory of God being fully revealed. And when His glory is fully revealed, our glory will be fully realized as well. And so we boast in the glory that's coming. We're not somehow trying to stave it off. We don't need to go back multiple times to the plastic surgeon to try to live as though our bodies aren't decaying away. We say, well, let it come. The day will come when we'll rise up with wings as eagles and we'll run and we'll not faint. And These are the things that are coming to us. We'll renew our youth. and Let it come. And the glory, the full glory that God is going to reveal, it's going to coincide with the glory that He's going to reveal in us. And So we live with that excitement, that Paul says we boast in it. We exult in the glory that will be revealed, the glory of God. 
after Paul says that, right after he says that, he can almost hear those around him saying, but Paul, look at the misery and the difficulty and the challenges and the tribulations that are ours. The church in Rome knew difficulty and persecution. It chased after the believer. The moment they made the profession of faith in Jesus Christ, at that moment in time, they came under the disagreement of the world in which they lived in, the challenges of the world, and they had to navigate it because they were facing persecution on every side. You can hear Paul hearing their voices. We boast in the glory of God. We're living in this eschatological perspective. We're surrounded by grace all around us. We're at peace with God. These are experiences. But what about this, they say? And Paul doesn't even miss a beat. He says, well, also, also, we glory in tribulations. We glory in that as well. We glory in the tribulations that come upon us. And when he says this, he's not coming up with a novel idea. Paul is not suggesting an innovation at this time or a thought that is just Paul stubbornly sticking to his points and trying to remain positive in the face of, you know, this is not Paul whistling in the dark, whistling through the graveyard, pretending that it's not there. This is Paul picking up a theme that he received from Jesus Christ himself. And Paul's not the only one who picks up this theme. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 12 in the Beatitudes, the Lord Jesus comes to the end of those Beatitudes and says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now when I was a little boy and I was learning the Beatitudes, I remember the teacher was teaching me, told me the way to read blessed is happy. Happy are you. Happy are you. Happy are you who are persecuted. Happy are you when you're reviled and persecuted and people speak all manner of evil falsely against you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And Paul's just picking up on that note that the Lord gave us. And James does the same thing. James says in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking nothing. And that succession of argumentation that James gives is the same kind of succession of argument that Paul is going to give us here in this passage. And Peter, Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-7. through 7. He writes this, In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Blessed are you, Jesus says. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, Jesus says. James says, count it all joy. Peter says, greatly rejoice. Paul says, we glory in tribulations. We exalt or we boast in tribulations. The question is, why? Why? Let's follow Paul's reasoning here for a moment. So let's look at verses 3, 4, and 5 again and just review what he says here. He says, we also glory. We exalt. The word there, glory, is we boast. becomes our brag in tribulations. Knowing that tribulations produce perseverance or endurance is the word. 
and endurance character and character hope and now hope does not disappoint or we might say hope does not make us ashamed because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given unto us. Paul starts with tribulation. The word that he uses for tribulation is a word that means basically pressure. It's to be pressed upon by resistance and it applies something more than just the usual trials that everyone goes through in a fallen world. This is the example of somebody who is doing something more than just plowing through a thorny situation in life. This is much more than just pain in childbirth. This is more than just hitting, you know, red lights on your way home when you're hungry and just, you know, getting a little frustrated. There's something more than this. This is the marshalling of Satan, the God of this age, bringing trials against us and pressures against our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, before coming to Christ, you were an enemy of the holy God of all creation. After coming to Christ, you have become an enemy of the unholy God of this age. And He's against you. And He's opposed to you. And He seeks to bring upon you sufferings and afflictions and tribulations in order to drive you, in order to punish you for that. So Paul starts with tribulations, hardships. The next thing he says, we endure them. Again, that implies that this tribulation is something more than being cut off in traffic. This is something more than just having a bad day or a brief disruption in your life. This is a plight, this is a tribulation that you have to persevere through. This is a tribulation you have to endure through. And the idea here is that there's a continued faithfulness that goes on in a long test, in a long plodding ground of difficulty. And this produces this tribulation, this enduring tribulation, produces then a demonstration in your life of perseverance or endurance. And you can't experience endurance, by the way, without some kind of suffering. The suffering that you have to endure through. Nobody endures through a happy marriage. You don't. You don't suffer through it. You delight in it. Nobody endures a bad meal, or a good meal, I should say. If it's delicious, and it's steak, and it, you don't endure it. You enjoy it. Oh, you've got to suffer through some things. Sometimes it feels like the plate that's been delivered up to you over and over and over again is, you know, sour mash. And you just got it. Plot through it. Endure it. So Paul starts with tribulation. He adds to it this testimony of endurance. And then the King James gives to us what equals character. And the Greek word there for character is a proven or approved character. You might think that you're something. You might think that you have something. You might think that you're going to produce something, but you don't really know until you're put to the test. Once you're put to the test, you find out really what you're made of. You find you prove the metal of what you think you've got, or what you have, or what you are, or what's happened to you. It, it happens, it presents itself to the test. You go through tribulation, you endure it, and it proves, it provides a test to prove what you're made of. You younger people won't be able to relate to this. You've got to go back a while, but maybe some of you can remember back in the mid-80s, the American tourist commercial for the luggage, the American tourister luggage. There was a woman who comes, and she's got her nice American tourister suitcase. She's in the airport. There's another man alongside of them. They check in their bags, and both of them put their suitcases 
on the conveyor belt and the conveyor belt goes back behind the wall and then on the other side of the wall there's a gorilla and he grabs these suitcases and starts swinging them around and slamming on them and jumping on them and one of them crumples all up to pieces and the American tourister holds true and endures the test as the gorilla tramples all over it. And then on the other side, when they reach their destination, the two individuals, the man and the woman, are waiting for their suitcases and the man's suitcase comes out and there's clothes all over the place and his suitcases in pieces and the woman's American tourist. That suitcase comes out pristine. No worse for the wear, you might say. It's proven itself. It's been tested. Its character has been proven. All right. It's a bad illustration. But that's what Paul's talking about. You, you go through tribulation. You're roiled about over an enduring period of time by the gorilla. You endure it. And the character is proven what you are. The test comes out and character is proven. And now you take that tribulation and you add to it endurance. And then you come up with this proven character. And what this does is it brings to you a confirmed faith, a hope, something that we're going to talk about here a little bit more fully, but the hope is found in this. You discover that your faith is not something you've just painted upon your life. This is not just a conventional suit of clothes that you've put on, an intellectual turn in your mind. This is not something that you just put on to conveniently deal with the problems in your life for a moment so you'd feel better, but you found out that this thing that you believed and this thing that you trusted in had fixed itself down deep into your soul and that it endured through the storm and the difficulty. It wasn't a trivial thing. It wasn't a trite thing. You thought you meant it. You thought you believed it, but you weren't sure. Then you went through the test and you found out I did. There was a transformation that took place in my life. I didn't dream these things up. This just wasn't a moment of excitement, of a thrill for a moment of relief, but this was an enduring change. And that produces hope. See, it's the experience of a transformed life that God allows to be demonstrated to you in the midst of tribulation as you endure it and you endure and prove the test that brings you hope. But on the other side, there's more than this. It's not simply that you endure, but it's how you endured. It's that you endured and in the endurance, in the test, in the grind, in the abrasion of the experience that you were going through, the surface of your life was knocked away to prove what was underneath it all And what it was this, the motivation, the passion, the desire that was revealed in your life was this. In those moments of trial, in those moments of testing, as you endured, as you came through, what God demonstrated was above everything else, you had a love for Him. And you experienced His love for you. It was the enduring testimony of love that brought you through it. You weren't holding on because you were just fearful. You weren't holding on so that you could just go along with the crowd. You weren't holding on just because you wanted to concede to some good argument and then you were afraid to change your opinion because people would think ill of you. It wasn't simply because you were just trying to pose a conservative route. You know, you just placed a bet down because you wanted to go to heaven in the end. and That's all you were going after. No, you, you held on. You met with Him and He met you in the midst of your difficulty and your challenge. And the thing that was keeping you true to Him and bound to Him, and the thing that was exposed in the midst of all that suffering was the love of God that had been poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. That's encouraging. In the middle of all the trials and difficulties of my life, when I discovered not only that I endure and put up with it, you know, a lot of people put up with a lot of grief because they're just not courageous enough to change their situation. They decide, better the devil I know than the devil I don't know. I'll just suffer here, and I'll just endure it, and... This is just a plot of life, but there's no encouragement in that. 
just kind of holding on because of a kind of conservatism that says, oh, I'm just stubborn, I'm not going to give up. If I give up now, people will say I was wrong and I'm not going to let anybody know that I was wrong in this opinion I had. And People do that too. They'll hang on just because they stubbornly want to be in the right or whatever it is. No hope in that. There's no rejoicing in hope in that. It's when you go through those trials and there's difficulties and what's exposed is not a stubborn nature and not a conservative nature and not a fearful nature. I've met individuals. I remember telling an individual who was, had to make a difficult decision and he didn't want to do the thing he should have done. And I told him, and he, he used a lot of Bible verses to say this is why he was doing it. And I told him he had the faith of a coward. His wasn't great faith. He was using those verses because he just didn't want to change his way and step into an area that would make him totally dependent upon God and step in an area that people might say looked wrong and didn't look right because of the conventional wisdom of the day. It was just the faith of a coward. And interestingly enough, about 15 or 20 years after that, sitting over here in the seat, I got a phone call and I saw it was from him. Well, it was a message and I hadn't heard from him in 20 years. And he said, you were right. I had the faith of a coward and God has finally revealed to me my sin. That kind of faith, oddly enough, can endure through a lot of situations. But there's no hope in it. There's no joy in it. There's no delighting in it. No, but when we endure and what's exposed instead is an overwhelming love for God and an overwhelming sense of His love for us. Oh, that's something to discover. That's something wonderful. That's something glorious. And when everything is threatened to be taken away from you and you find that the love of God for you and upon you and from you, going back to Him, takes the place of everything and is better than everything that you're afraid of losing, well, now there's hope. There's hope when you discover that. That's, hope. that's something glorious. So that's all groundwork here. Let's make four observations. But let's make four observations from the statement that Paul says we glory in tribulations and trials. The first thing is this. Trials and tribulations should be expected by the one who has set his faith or her faith on Jesus Christ. In fact, if you don't experience trials and tribulations, you should be concerned. You should expect them for two reasons. And here's the first reason. The first reason is because Satan and the world are opposed to those or totally given a faith to Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's just going to happen. Here's a great informative passage. Go to John chapter 7. Go to John chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. It's the account of the Lord Jesus, his half-brothers, who have come to him and... They're encouraging him to go up to Jerusalem to prove himself. And they're, they're actually mocking him and they're expressing their cynicism of him. And the Lord Jesus has an answer for them that I think reveals to us something of this nature of the persecution we experience when we give our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is what we read in John 7 verses 1 through 8. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, 
but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I'm not going up to the feast, this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. What can we take from this? There are different things we take from it, but simply this. The man or woman who has given themselves to follow Jesus Christ is now a person who is living against his times. He's living against the age. He is out of sync with the world, and the world is against them. And they can't just go on living the way they lived before. Everybody else, they're just kind of floating along. They're just moving along with the current of the age, and the world can't necessarily go against them because they're with the grain of the world. Not so with the believer. As a result, we experience trials, and we experience difficulties, and among other things, we've got to be wise. We've got to be a little bit calculated in how we live our lives. Because of that, Paul gives all kinds of examples of this trial that he experienced, these trials that come upon us. Let's look at the second thing here first. The second thing is that God works to purify us. The world's against us. Satan is against us. It comes against us. But in all of this, God is working to purify us. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, you'll remember the Lord Jesus is confronting Simon. Jesus says to Simon, this is in the Last Supper before they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And shortly after this, Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. Jesus says to Simon, 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 indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. Now, listen. When Satan came and proposed what he was going to do, he wasn't thinking of, you know, when you sift out wheat, you're, you're separating the true thing from the false thing. You're bringing apart the good and you're pulling apart the bad and separating the two things. You're getting the chaff and you're getting rid of the chaff so you might have the kernel of wheat. And just so you know, that is not what Satan has in mind. His goal is not to somehow purify and separate the wheat out and the good thing out. What Satan has in mind is he wants to expose all the chaff in the man. He wants to shake out Peter to prove all the chaff that is in him so that he can mock the man and so that he can mock the master. But God lets the sifting happen because God is willing for the chaff to be shaken out so that he can make the man and so that the man can glorify the master. They have two different objectives in mind, but God can and God will. And God will allow the enemy and the world to do these things. They want to expose our hypocrisy. God does too. So he can take it away and put it under the blood and he can make us what he wants to make us and shape us and mold us so that we can all the more give glory to him. So God works in all these things. Where the Satan is against us and the world is against us, God works through all those things to purify us. Here's another thing. The Christian life is not all sunshine and blessing. That's another thing we take from this. That really odd and twisted synchronization of Christianity and worldly pursuits of pleasure and prosperity and power, you know, the word of faith thing, just say the right thing, think the right thing, don't say stinky words because you'll bring it in your life, say positivism, say positive things so you can bring all these good things in your life and you can go forward and that sunshiny Christianity doesn't, doesn't measure up well with the life of Paul, what Paul teaches and what the early church experienced. And by the other day, it reminded me of a little children's song that she sang when she was growing up, which we never learned to sing. We're singing little songs with the kids next door. Here's one she learned. You thought she would have passed it on to us, but for some reason, she didn't think it was a good song to teach us. The song goes like this. This actually seems to be the song that that unbiblical theology got its note from. This maybe is the theme song for it. It's, 
We're going to a mansion on the Happy Day Express. The letters on the engine are J-E-S-U-S. The guard calls all for heaven. We gladly answer yes. We're going to a mansion on the Happy Day Express. Well, you can do a retrospective of some life. You could put, you know, you do this at funerals. They show a person's life and there's a song that's playing in the background, kind of a retrospective of the life they live. You will not ever be able to do a retrospective, for example, of Paul's life with that song playing in the background. <laughs> Going on a mansion to the Happy Day Express. Oh, he endured suffering and trial and difficulty and hardship. He rejoiced in it. He boasted in it. But not without pain and not without difficulty and not without hardship. He endured and entered into these trials and tests and that's a part of the Christian life. And Paul's realistic about it. And Paul answers it and confronts it. And here's the third thing. Strangely, the Christian boasts in just such things. We don't simply boast in the glory to come, but the Christian is caused to boast in coming through trials. By the way, this is also a very human thing to some extent. You'll find in nursing homes, if you talk to individuals and they want to tell you about some wonderful thing in their life or they want to tell you about their life, they don't tell you about all the good things. What they really relish in doing is telling you about all the difficulties and the hardships and the things they endured. I think it's F.W. Borum that said that in old sailor homes, all you hear are stories about the storms they survived, right? they take some sense of glee in having met and faced the end of their lives and the difficulties and being pressed and come out the other side. That somehow brings them a sense of satisfaction. But what's true for all men is particularly true for the follower of Jesus Christ. Particularly true for us. So let's look at a passage where Paul does this. And by the way, Paul does this a lot of times. Sometimes the most extensive one is found in 2 Corinthians 11. So go to 2 Corinthians 11. We won't read the whole thing. We'll just read a part of it. But it goes on. There's other things he talks about here. Verses 22 through 27. Paul even asked in in some of your translations to give him permission to do a little boasting. He writes here, are they Hebrews? Verse 22. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22. I'll read down to you verse 27. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. Let me do a little foolish talking here. I the more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in facing death more often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, and fastings often, and cold, in nakedness. Let me read to you one other passage along these lines. Second Corinthians, just go back. If you've got your Bibles there, go back to chapter 4. Let me read to you 8 through 11. 8 to 11. Second Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. Paul's on a theme here. He's picking up something he'd already brought up once before. 
He writes, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, in order that we might present Christ to you, he's basically saying. Now listen, Paul is not whining in these passages of Scripture. You know, you know, when you read the Bible, you have to read it with a tone, and he's not a sad sack here. He's not lamenting. He's not whining. He's not complaining. He's boasting. He's bragging. I'm being a fool here. For a moment, just let me ask a little foolishness here. Give a little, expose a little foolishness to you. I the more. I've gone through all these things. He's exalting in his trials because they have proved the character of his faith. It's proved to be genuine and real. Here's the fourth thing, and the last thing is an observation. We may exalt in these tribulations because and when they expose the changed heart that came to us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Above everything else, the transformation that the Lord Jesus brings to the individual who trusts in Him, the regenerative influence of regenerating faith is this. God brings to us a love from God and a love for God. God pours out upon us a love for Himself, and God pours out into us His love for others. And it's love. This transforming love that broadens our world out and changes. That's the river we get into. It's the river of this overwhelming love for God and love for others. And we journey down it. God teaches us and instructs us. And nothing like trials to demonstrate that reality. Nothing like trials to demonstrate that reality. Sometimes you might wonder, what would I do if I really faced tremendous hardships? What would happen if I were put on trial for my faith and as a result I might lose everything, my house, everything? Would I give it up? I say, Lord, I'd give it up, but I don't know until I meet the test. Actually, wonderfully, some have met the test and they've rejoiced in it. They've met the test and they've rejoiced in it. I remember traveling on the island of Bali some years ago, which we were visiting individuals who had come to Christ over the last few years, individuals that we had been a part of instructing. We went back to visit them where their homes were and many of them had lost their homes. So one family had had their home surrounded by the villagers, and they put a brick wall around the home, all the way around the home, and even the doorway. They only left about a, a three-foot gap at the bottom of the doorway for them to crawl in and out of. They wanted to seal them off as much as they could. Another man lost all of his spice trees, all of his land, because they took all of his land back. It had been signed on a card of his citizenship, but the card on your citizenship also had to say the religion that you were born into. And when he became a Christian, they said it nullified his citizenship card. Therefore, it nullified all the business transactions for all the land he'd purchased. They took all his land away. Not only that, they took his family away. His father-in-law came and took back his daughter and took back the children they'd born with him. And he was living in a hut in the middle of a rice field. And that's where he was living. So we went and visited these individuals. And the stunning thing was, and they weren't, they were sad. That was a hard thing to go through. But the stunning thing that came to us as we met with these individuals what was the overwhelming thing that was emanating from their life was joy. Joy. And the love that God had given them and the experience of God's love for them. They weren't going back. 
They had no desire to go back. Take the world, but give me Jesus. was the mentality we saw in them. We read Psalm 27 for our scripture reading this morning. It's a psalm of praise. It's actually a song of wonderful triumph that David is proclaiming and declaring. A, a triumph in the desire that he's discovered in his own life. The interesting thing is, Psalm 27 is understood to have been written as he was, or just after he had fled from Jerusalem when his son Absalom had led a coup against him and driven him out from his capital city. So here is David, who has been forced to flee the capital city of Jerusalem that he had gained and won for himself, to flee his palace, to flee his kingdom, and he is driven out by his own son who has led the revolt against him. So God takes from David all these things. He's stripped of the things that in the past he had fought and labored to gain. Those things that he had toiled to secure and maintain are completely pulled out of his life. Riches, reputation, relationships, gone in a moment. In that moment, on that battleground, David discovers a desire that is greater than a desire for all those things. A desire that's so great and so wonderful that it leads him to write this psalm of great and tremendous triumph when everything's been taken away from him. He says, there's one thing I've desired. This is why he's triumphant. There's one thing I've desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I want to get back to Jerusalem, but I don't want to get back to Jerusalem in order to inhabit my palace, to reestablish myself on my throne, to get my reputation back, to get my rule over the nation. I want to get back for one reason. I want to go to that tent, that tabernacle where I enter into the presence of God and worship Him and know Him and God reveals Himself to me. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. When you said to me, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face will I seek. You've lost everything. David's wandering out. He's being cursed as he's wandering away from the city. People are cursing him as he goes out the way and as he's going out the way, the one thing that God says to him is, David, seek my face. He says, Lord, that's really what I want. To seek your face. To know you. To love you. To enjoy you. And there's the triumph. This deep, transformative desire dictated by the love of God that is shed abroad in his heart. The love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts. This is the triumph. This is the proof of faith. This is what causes hope to come shining through in the middle of our difficulties and trials as we endure. We love Him. We want Him above everything else. This is glory now. This is glory now. That's a glorious moment. And it points us to the glory that's to come when He will be everything and all in all. Now, you might not be going through those hard things now. You might not be going through those difficulties now. But here's the note. Here's the thing. Oh God, prove this true in my life. Prove it when the difficulty comes. Prove it when I'm not getting the feedback or the responses, the validation that I once sought and the, these other things. Prove that what I want above everything else is you. You. That's why he came and saved us, right? He saved us for himself. He saved us for himself. Let's bow our heads and pray. Your word tells us that man is born to trouble like sparks fly upward. If that's true of all human nature, 
What happens when the enemy would fan the flames against us to seek our destruction? When he would blow the winds of destruction over us to try to wipe us and blow us from the map? Embed our faith in you, O God, that we might hold strong and true in the testing hour. The fire might sweep over, let it sweep then. Burn away the dross, burn away the chaff, blow away the rubble, leave behind those good and precious things. What is remaining, O oh God, we thank you before we enter your presence, there'll be one last trial, one last gracious trial that you'll coordinate to purify us completely. We thank you, God. We thank you for these things. We know, dear God, that there are tests still to come. We don't rush into them. We don't want to experience them. But God, forgive us if we're sinfully trying to avoid them, trying to simply give ourselves over to pleasure and comfort. Give us instead a deep love for you that would follow wherever you would lead us, go wherever you would take us, that we would learn to say, we follow in his footsteps. What if our feet be torn where he has marked the pathway? All hail the briar and thorn. That I might know Jesus Christ even in his sufferings. That I might be conformed more and more into his likeness. That I might know him. That I might know him. That, O oh God, let that be the measure of our walk with you, we pray. We can't do this on our own. We can't resolve ourselves to these intents, but your spirit gets that in us, and that's what we pray for and ask. In Jesus' name, amen.